All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. Within four chapters, 13 years have passed. And in those 13 years, we've seen the journey of a young man who in his late teens finds himself in a prison in Egypt. After receiving two dreams by God, showing him that one day his brothers, even his fathers, his father will bow before him. Excited about the dream, he decided to share it that information with his brothers and father, and you can imagine how they reacted. They weren't nearly as thrilled about it as Joseph was. The brothers became angry as they were laboring and bringing the flocks out to certain pastures. Jacob sends Joseph to go check in on them, for Joseph was Jacob's favorite. He had received a coat from his father of many colors. His older brothers were, of course, uh, upset about that. And when Joseph finally came to them, their anger had festered so much to the point where they grabbed Joseph and they tried to get rid of him. They threw him in a pit, hoping that he would die and just simply go away. But then one of the brothers, Reuben, said, no, no, let's not kill him. And so he left to come and then came back and discovered that Joseph was gone because while Reuben was gone, the other brother said, you know, why just simply kill Joseph? Let's, let's sell him and at least make something off this deal. So as a band of Ishmaelites came through the area, they sold Joseph to them. They took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph, once in Egypt, was then sold into slavery to Potiphar's wife. I'm sorry, to Potiphar, the captain of the guard. While he served faithfully there, and God blessed the house of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife came on to him, tried to seduce him many times, and he resisted, finally resisting to the point where he simply ran out of the room unbeknownst to himself that she had her hands on his robe and he fled the room naked. Once she was resisted in such a dynamic fashion, she then decided to tell the men that Joseph tried to take advantage of her, which threw Joseph into prison. He went from the pit to the prison. And in the prison, he then met two individuals that Pharaoh was upset with, the chief butler, the cupbearer, and the chief baker. They had dreams that they could not understand while in prison. And of course, Jacob knew that God was capable of interpreting the dreams. And as they told the dreams to Joseph, he interpreted the cupbearer's dream that in three days he would be restored to his position. He would once again serve Pharaoh in the manner in which he did. Then the baker said, oh, I wonder what mine is. And Joseph said, well, It's not nearly as good for you as it was the cupbearer. In three days, Pharaoh will have your head and place your body on a stake. (laughs) And sure enough, it came to pass exactly as God had showed Joseph that it would. He asked the cupbearer to remember him when he's in Pharaoh's presence. But the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And we then became acquainted with the term Two full years passed. As Joseph remained in the dungeon, undoubtedly wondering why or what had happened, what went wrong, but he waited on the Lord. He had nothing else he could do. Until one day, Pharaoh then had a dream. And the cupbearer remembered his error and said, Oh, Pharaoh, I know the magicians can't interpret the dream for you, but I remember this guy in prison. Remember when you were mad mad at me and you threw me in prison? Remember that? When I was there, I met a guy. I know a guy. Pharaoh, I know a guy. 
and he can interpret the dreams for you. And sure enough, in one day, after two years of waiting in prison, Joseph is brought before Pharaoh to interpret the dream that Pharaoh had had. And after interpreting the dream, as we read last week together, Joseph concluded in, in Genesis 41 that to prepare for the upcoming famine that would take place within seven years of this dream. For there first would be seven years of bounty and then there would be seven years of severe famine. And Joseph then suggested a man be put in charge who would be responsible for collecting one-fifth of the harvest during the seven years of plenty to prepare for those seven years of famine. And lo and behold, Pharaoh thought that that was a brilliant idea. But little did Joseph know that he would be the one tapped on the shoulder. We often find ourselves in periods of time where we, we don't understand what's going on. We don't see the plan that God has. We don't understand the purpose that He has for us. And as we are waiting in those periods of time that we now like to call those two full years, meaning that they were long, drawn-out years, monotonous years, day by day, appearing that nothing is taking place. And yet, from our perspective, we can easily conclude that, that God isn't doing anything. But as we discovered last week, God is always working. And you may be in one of those periods of time yourself, those two full years, monotonous, day after day. You see that God has brought you to this point, but you don't see it, the fulfillment of what you believe God may still be wanting yet to do. These are years of preparation. They are years that God must work in us first to then work through us for His glory and for His purposes. That time of preparation can be very difficult. It can seem very monotonous. We could easily conclude in those periods of time that God has forgotten us like the cupbearer forgot Jacob. It's easy to conclude that God isn't working because nothing is happening. And then on top of it, we live in a culture of instant gratification, don't we? We certainly are the most patient people in the world, aren't we? I'm glad I'm not the only one that struggles with that. And it's easy to become frustrated and discouraged. It's easy to become disheartened, thinking that it's not happening. I don't see what you're doing, God. I don't understand. I don't know why I need to go through what I'm going through. But that's our perspective. God's perspective is completely different. He knows exactly why we need to go through what we are going through. As we have stated over and over and over again, God saved us with a purpose in mind. God saved us to prepare us for what He has in store for us. Because He has saved each and every one of us to play a vital role in the body of Christ. To use us for His glory and His purposes. God doesn't save people to ride the bench he doesn't save people to simply uh, sit in the stands of the spectators watching others in the body of Christ fight the battle and to do the work. We're all called with a purpose. But before we can execute that purpose properly, God must prepare us. God knew exactly what he had in store for Joseph. And God knew exactly what Joseph needed to experience to be prepared for that purpose. And God determined that Joseph needed to sit in jail for two years. Now again, why it is, I can't answer that. I could only speculate, but God knows exactly why. 
And when Joseph is finally tapped on the shoulder for the purpose in which God was raising him up to fulfill, Joseph was prepared. We see this in Moses. We see this in Daniel. We see this in Jeremiah. We see this in Joshua. We see it in each and every person that God ever used. And there is no better example than David, who was told at a young age that he would be king, and then he was chased around by Saul for years because God needed to prepare him for the plan and purpose that he had for them. Unfortunately, too many Christians in America, I think, have inadvertently, for one reason or another, have decided that Christianity is here to supplement their life, to give them happiness, that God is here to serve them rather than us to serve Him, and yet the Bible is just the opposite. Remember what Jesus said, that one who is worthy of following Him denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows after That we've been bought and paid for, not with precious metals like gold and silver or jewels as rubies or diamonds, but by the precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. And this purpose that we have been purchased for, we need to be prepared for. And Joseph has been prepared. Now notice with me how fast things change for Joseph. Joseph got up that morning having no idea that that night prior, Pharaoh had a dream. The Bible says that when Joseph got up, he was then summoned to Pharaoh's court. He was then shaven, put on new clothes, took a bath, prepared himself to stand before Pharaoh to interpret the dream, to give the wisdom that he believed Pharaoh needed to hear. And now God finally begins to unveil his plan for Joseph. Let's pick it up in verse 37. As 13 years have now passed since he was thrown into the pit in verse 37. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. What advice? The advice that Joseph gave in verses uh, 33 on to 36 of earlier in the chapter of a, the appointment of a man over this process of collecting one-fifth of the harvest. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh saying, I don't know if we could find a better person for the job. Really? He went on, you know, Indeed.com or Monsters.com and selected his guy from the prison to now be put into charge as the second authority in all of Egypt. Pharaoh asks all of the magicians who were stymied and stumped by the dream in which he had and they could not interpret. These were the intellectual elites at that time. And Pharaoh asked the question, can we find a man better than this one in whom resides the Spirit of God? Remember when he was brought to Potiphar, Potiphar's house was blessed. He was the steward there in Potiphar's house. Potiphar didn't even know what he owned. Being a steward of one's home means that you were in charge of all the material possessions of that person from all of the items that he had within his home to the number of chariots that he had in his garage, the chariot made by Lamborghini, the chariot made by Ferrari, my chariot made by Toyota. He was in charge of the bank accounts, the food storage, everything. And the Bible even tells us that Potiphar didn't even realize what he had except the simple morsels of food that he ate on a daily basis. He, uh, he just gave it all to Joseph, and Joseph was faithful, but then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. 
when he found himself in prison. The prison guard realized that Joseph was a unique individual and he put him in charge of all of the prison. And Joseph faithfully, faithfully executed that position. It's interesting when God says, shall you be faithful in the small things? And if you are faithful in the small things, I will put you over the big things. Joseph didn't ask to be put in this position. Pharaoh believes that he has selected Joseph, but we're going to find out that the Bible tells us that it was God who selected Joseph for this position. As we continue reading in verse 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. As Pharaoh acknowledged that it was God who gifted Joseph in this manner, it was Joseph who was faithful in Potiphar's home and in the prison that led him to this position, prepared him for this moment. But the Bible tells us clearly that it's God who's behind it all. In Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he, that is God, wishes. It was God who moved Pharaoh's heart. It was Pharaoh who recognized the faithfulness of Joseph, but it was God who moved the heart of Pharaoh. To put Joseph in this position. It is interesting to me that the Bible always shows us that God is in charge and is in, that's in sovereign control of everything. Including the leadership of countries. The leaderships of governments. It is God who will put into place those people in whom he desires to be in those places. Amen. Sometimes giving the people a good leader, and sometimes giving them a not-so-good leader, often to lead them to repentance. But when we see the things happening around us as we see happening, don't ever believe for a moment that God is no longer in charge. And it will play out perfectly, just as God has ordained it to do so. That's why I have confidence. Oh, I don't have confidence in the elected officials. But I have confidence in my God. I think we need to take a bigger perspective as Christians. I think we need to look at the totality of everything from a biblical point of view. Because so often we can get wrapped up in the microcosm of the moment that we lose sight of the macro narrative that is playing out before us. A meta-narrative, which I like to use a lot, meaning that there's an overarching story that's still in control of everything. For example, for example, the Titanic. We know that as the Titanic crossed the Atlantic, people were going about their everyday lives. But the ship was going in a direction and the ship then occurred a uh, collision with an iceberg. And yet the Titanic sank when everyone said that it wouldn't. So many people are setting up deck chairs on the Titanic and po polishing the brass not knowing what's going to happen next. The reason I say this is because if we really want to change this nation, Let's be honest with ourselves now. Do we honestly believe that it's solely going to be through electing different people for different positions? However, though, if we want to radically change this nation, how radical would this nation change if we started seeing people coming to Jesus Christ? If the kingdom of God was represented in a more dynamic manner, 
through individuals who love God and called upon His name. Oh, certainly we should vote. Oh, certainly we should be active in our communities, resisting the tsunami of decadence that is trying to sweep across our nation. We need to stand up and protect our children. We need to say enough's enough. But in the end, what will radically change a nation is the hearts of people changing for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So when next time we engage in a political conversation, and I would encourage you to do so, please don't forget the most important thing. Do you know Christ? Do you know Jesus? That's where we need to focus our attention, through prayer, fasting. If we're going to ask for revival, as so many have mentioned, let us ask for ourselves first and foremost. Lord, am I walking with you faithfully? Am I being faithful in that period of time of two full years? Am I allowing you to use me where you have me for your glory and for your purposes? This is the way revival begins. It begins within you and I. It begins in the church of God. That's where it starts. We need to abandon carnality. We need to abandon apathy and complacency. And we need to urgently go before our God and petition His throne. Remember what He said about the healing of a nation? If my people will humble themselves and repent. If my people will do so. I don't want to see the nation change for the next four years. I want to see the nation change for the next 40 years. And we do that through Christ. As one wrote, he said very eloquently, somehow in the loneliness of his recent years, abandoned and forgotten in prison, Joseph had learned to let the Lord have his way. In his time, for his purpose, Joseph allowed God to change his position. Notice with me as we continue in verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off of his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man shall lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, Zephaniah Paniah, and he gave him a wife, Asenith, the daughter of Potipharah, priest, uh, priest of An. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Talk about change. Just remember the day before he was in prison. Okay? Wondering what was going to happen next. The next day he's before Pharaoh. Then he's being appointed second in command. He's given a signet ring. The ring that was meant to seal the deal. Literally, that's where we get the term from. A signet ring was used as a signature at that time. As a document was created, the signet ring would be placed in wax. And of course, you know that the imprint of that signet ring authorized that document and solidified that document. What an incredible position Joseph was put in. Not only that, he was giving another fine robe. This one indicated that he was now second in command in all of Egypt. He was given a gold chain. In the Hebrew, the word is bling. He was given bling. I'm kidding. <laughs> I just wanted to see how many were Really? That's in the Bible? What did you learn at church today? Bling's in the Bible. Bling is biblical, you know. 
And then he was introduced throughout all of the land as the second in command, requiring that one bow the knee to him. Isn't it interesting how quickly things can change with God? I can only imagine that the night that Joseph placed his head on the pillow and went to bed or sleeping in the corner of the cell on hay or whatever it may have been, he could have never imagined what tomorrow was going to bring. That's why we can never give up on God because as long as we have a tomorrow, we have no idea what that tomorrow is going to bring. Especially knowing that God is in charge and how fast things can change. And now he's even given a family. His Egyptian name means God speaks and he lives. Interesting. Even the pagan name that Joseph was given still reflects his relationship with God. He was given a wife from one of the priests of On, this way in, you know, endearing him to the religious leaders, but being in charge of the religious leaders. He's being put in a position that would allow him to interact with the priests of that time. As Chuck Swindoll wrote, I love it, he said, if God was in it, God would do it, and that's precisely what happened here. God was in it, and God did it, and Joseph now understands that. It's interesting to me how much of this imagery is used for you and I who are saved in Christ. It's interesting to know that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to know that we have been made joint heirs with Christ in the family of God. That we can call God Father, as Paul said so brilliantly and eloquently and simply. We can call Him Abba, Father, Dad. When Jesus began his prayer and said, My Father who art in heaven, that was blasphemous in that culture to call God Dad. And now we can all, through Christ, call the Father Dad. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the kingdom of God, prince and princesses in our heavenly Father's kingdom. But no parable shows this more than the parable of the prodigal son. One of my favorite parables that Jesus spoke. As you know, the prodigal son left, desired his father's inheritance prior to his father's death, which was an incomplete insult. He wanted to spend it, and he wanted to spend it now. And he went and he squandered all of it away on various, you know, things and, you know, living in a life of debauchery. Finally, ending up so broke that he finds himself feeding swine, which of course were not permitted in the Jewish culture. And at that moment, he has a realization that, hey, when I was at home with dad, it was so much better than it is now. I'm going to go home and see if my father will take me back as one of his servants. But then the Bible tells us something very interesting. It's something that is so incredible that I think that in our culture we lose the significance of this moment. And I'll read it to you out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 20 to 24. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. For him to have seen the son return, he had to be looking, waiting, and anticipating his return, hoping that his son would come home. Moved with compassion, he ran and fell on his son's neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Sound familiar? Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. 
and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This is restoration. This is the parable that explains to us that when we come to Christ, we begin to be restored from the fallen, of, fallen nature of Adam to the restored nature that we obtain through the new birth in and through Christ. Notice in the New Testament as you read the various times that Paul says, take off the old, put on the new. He's talking about that new robe. The new name that we are given. The new position that we occupy. This is what Christ has done for us. Not only atoning for our sins, but adopting us in to the family of God. What an extraordinary event. In verse 46 of our text, let's jump back into Genesis. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He was 17 when he was taken. He is now 30. Wouldn't it be nice to know what Joseph is thinking at this moment? Well, I'm, I'm thankful to say that we are going to discover what Joseph is thinking in the naming of his two sons. It gives us insight to Joseph's perspective. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth, brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all of the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid it up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. And Joseph gathered very much grain as the sands of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable." It's interesting to me that once Joseph finds himself in this position of authority, the first thing that Joseph does is get to work. He does exactly what he was commissioned to do. Faithfully fulfilling the desire of Pharaoh and responsibly doing what God has placed him there to do to prepare for the survival of the people. It's interesting to me that when we look at Joseph, he could have gone in many different directions, but he put his nose to the grindstone, and yet the dream initially given to him has not yet been fulfilled, has it? But at the moment in time, he takes what is in front of him and faithfully fulfills it. Wherever we find ourselves today, wherever God has placed us, let us faithfully fulfill it. Whatever job you occupy, work as unto the Lord. Fulfill it as God would have you fulfill it, even if it's something you don't like to do. Maybe you don't see it as the end of where you'd like to be, meaning it's a stepping stone. God would still have you fulfill it faithfully. Because in fulfilling it faithfully, you are preparing yourself and allowing God to prepare you for what He may have for you next. Being faithful in the small things and then given those larger things that God promises. Either here or into the kingdom of heaven. Be faithful where you are. But it doesn't end there. As Joseph got to work, in verse 50, and Joseph And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. That's in the first seven years of whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of An, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. 
Now, I want to talk to you today just briefly on a very, about a very sensitive issue. And I think it's an important subject that we discuss. What do I do with the hurts and the traumas of the past? How do I ever allow myself to move forward? What am I to do with them? That's a good question. I find many Christians paralyzed by their past and are having a grave difficulty moving forward. But in the naming of the first child of, of Joseph, Joseph gives us insight to his thinking. I have forgotten the troubles of the past, he says. What does he mean by that? Forgotten them in what way? Obviously, they're still in his memory because we see that later on in the book of Genesis. So what does he mean by forgotten? He means that he is no longer bound to those things, prohibiting him from moving forward. That's what he's saying. And when he talks about his father's house, he still, of course, remembers his father and brothers. He's not forgetting them, but he's not uh, allowing that hurt to hold him back any further. Because he's, it's necessary for him now to move forward. Now, I think that this is a biblical principle. Now, I understand this is very sensitive to some. I can't imagine the various things that you've experienced, but I can tell you this this morning that I am speaking from personal experience. Before becoming a Christian, I had a very difficult upbringing, as many of you know. But God spoke to my heart on this subject very early on. And I had to allow God to put it in its proper perspective to allow me to move forward. Let me give you some New Testament verses that I believe tell us that this is what we need to do, okay? The first one is found in Luke 9 Chapter 9, verses 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, notice this, no one having put his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, excuse me. Notice what he says here. To plow a field, if you're going to move forward, you can't be looking over your shoulder. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, and this was the verse that God used in my life to properly uh, give me proper perspective on my difficulties before becoming a Christian. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then he goes on in Philippians 3, 13 through 14. He says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Notice what he says here. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal of, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. All right. This is a very difficult topic. Over the last five, seven years, I've had this conversation with many Christians. Let me say this to begin with. Our world tells us that our current present moment, our present being, our present existence is simply the total, uh, uh, total accumulation of all the experiences and the events of my past shaping me, forming me in the moment affecting my decisions today that will therefore uh, affect my future tomorrow. 
okay? That we today are simply the sum total of all of our personal experiences that have happened up until this moment. That our thinking, our views, our understanding has solely been architected by the culmination of all of our personal experiences. And for one who is in this world apart from Christ, that is absolutely true. But once you come to Jesus Christ, things change. And we are no longer living from the past, but we are growing into the future. The Bible tells us clearly that God saved us. And the process that He began, Romans 8.30, those in whom He predestined, He called. Those in whom He called, He justified. Those in whom He justified, He glorified. That Jesus, God, is the author and the finisher of our faith. That He who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. The Bible tells me clearly, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells me clearly, I am no longer the sum total of what I once experienced. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now live that way. We cannot have our hand on the plow and continuously look backwards. I am not minimizing the things that you have experienced. I am allowing you to look at them differently in and through Christ. I don't know why you've experienced what you've experienced. I don't, cl- I don't have that wisdom and understanding. But for Joseph, he made the decision that now that God has brought me to this place, I have to live in the moment and live going forward. Moving forward. Notice what Paul said again in Philippians 3, 13-14. Paul arrested Christians, persecuted Christians, killed Christians. And when it was all said and done, the only way he could fulfill the call that God had upon his life was to give that over to the Lord. And this is how he did it. Brethren, I do not count myself as to have apprehended, meaning I haven't perfected, I'm not completely sanctified. But one thing I do, number one, forgetting those things that are which behind me. Forgetting, the same word that Joseph used. Does that mean they're out of our memory? No. But we are no longer allowing those things to shape us into the image that they want us to be, holding us back. We're allowing the Holy Spirit through His Word to shape us into the image of Christ. Notice what he says. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. For I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We all have traumas in our lives. We've experienced things that we cannot understand this side of heaven. But we are here today. And if we are in Christ, we are a new creation in Christ. All things have passed away. All things are brand new. May I encourage you to take those things to the cross to take those things to the Lord and say, Lord, I give them to you. I want to share with you just briefly how it happened in my life. I think this is important to repeat. Some of you have heard this and I appreciate your patience. When I first got saved, I got saved. My home life was terrible. My mom was a violent alcoholic. She lost touch of reality when she became intoxicated. I was adopted by my parents and they had lied to the judge saying that there was no alcoholism in our family when they adopted me. My dad confessed that the night before my wedding to me. My mom had the delusion that I was an illegitimate child from an affair that my dad had with the blonde next door neighbor to our house. And she hated me because she believed that I was simply a product of that illicit affair. To the point 
that one night, I was about five, six years old, I woke up in the middle of the night because I heard something stirring in my room to find my mother standing over my bed with a knife. Because, again, she wanted to get rid of me because I was the source of her unhappiness. My dad came running into the room, took the knife out of her hand, the police were called, and we went through that ordeal. That's just one of many. When I became a Christian, I immediately sensed a weight had been lifted from my shoulders. But I didn't fully know what that meant or understood how that impacted me. But my home life hadn't changed. My mom was still a violent alcoholic. And I would begin to pray for my parents, but it didn't look like they would ever come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. As I was driving to church on a Wednesday evening, I was listening to a prominent Christian psychologist who was interviewing two children of alcoholic parents. And in that conversation on the radio, those those individuals and that psychologist told his listening audience that you will always be affected by growing up in an alcoholic home and you'll never be free of those burdens and you will always have to contend with them in your marriage, in your parenting, etc. As I pulled into the church parking lot, I waited And I wanted to hear the totality of the interview because, of course, it was speaking directly to me. And at the end of it all, I was told that I would need endless hours of counseling before I could even have any type of normal life apart from the upbringing of my alcoholic home and my violent alcoholic mother. I just started crying in the car. I was 18, 19 years old just started crying. I'm like, Lord, God, if you can't do this, if you can't change me, then who can? I don't know what made me get out of the car. I saw people walking out of church and I, of course, wanted to be the tough guy and not let anybody see me cry. So I waited until most people had exited the church and then I went in. I don't know what moved me to go in, but I went in. And there was my pastor and he, he saw that I was upset And he, from the very beginning, took a very caring attitude towards me. And he said, what's wrong? I told him all that I had heard on the radio. And he just smiled. And I I said, what are you smiling about? He goes, open your Bible. And he had me read 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are brand new. He said, Eric, you are brand new now. Believe it. And you know what? By the grace of God, I did. Didn't require any counseling. I didn't require any, you know, attitude adjustment. Well, (laughs) not in that area. But I began to grow in my faith. And 28 years later, it has not affected my marriage nor my parenting at all. Why? Because I was a new creation in Jesus Christ. So when I talk about this, I am not talking about it simply academically. I've experienced this. This is how God has worked in my life. And if God can do it in my life, he certainly can do it in yours. May I ask you to consider that? But there was a second child, quickly. After Manasseh, the second child was named Ephraim. And in verse 52, in the name of the second, uh, he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. God can cause you to be fruitful wherever he has you. Our Context, our culture, our scenario doesn't dictate who we are and how fruitful we can be for the Lord. The Lord can always do something greater. So many believe that if we can just change our context, meaning change our situation, things would be all better. But the Bible says that God can change things right where you are. And Joseph saw it. He said, God can do things I didn't even anticipate. 
It means to be twofold fruitful. It means that he was blessed in a time where it didn't appear that he ever could be. And notice what he says here. Then the seven years of plenty which are, were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph said the famine was in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt were, there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, and whatever he says to you, to you, do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold the, to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in the land. I love what Chuck Swindoll said. He says, The memories of our past are still there, lodged deep in the, crest, uh, the creases beneath his cranium. But when relief finally came, God made him forget the pain the anguish of what had happened. We know the memories are still there because later in the book of Genesis, they're talked about, about his brothers and his families, etc., as we will see. But God made him get beyond what I would call the stings of those memories. And as Joel 2.25 said, and I love this verse, it's another one of my personal verses, so I will restore to you the years that the swarms of locusts has eaten. The crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts. These are very descriptive locusts. My great army which I sent among you. Meaning, the years of difficulty God will renew and restore to us. That's what he's saying here. I don't know what you've experienced, but God does. And as a Christian, God has allowed you to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are brand new. Now behold, forget those things which are behind and press forward to the upward call of the goal that Christ has set before you. And after we read all of this, we think, wow, Joseph has finally arrived. This is it. Those 13 years now make complete sense. Oh, do they? Because the dream is still not yet fulfilled. If we ended the story here, the story would be incomplete. For next week, we will begin to see the majestic wisdom of God begin to unfold before us. So stay tuned. Same time next week. Because God is going to do something tremendous. And if you will put your eyes and fix your eyes on Him this morning, I guarantee you God will do something tremendous in and through you like you have never anticipated.